Hey, it's Tom Sullivan with Forging Ahead, and I've got Zoe Silverman with me today. Zoe, why don't you take a minute and introduce yourself, however you like to be introduced? Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm Zoe Silverman. I work in people operations at Yesware, so we'll talk more about what the hell that means. Um, living in JP at the moment, uh, 24-7 since we're on lockdown, so I'm here in my two-bedroom apartment um, trying to get through this weird time. Yeah. What, uh, what's the impact or like, what are you feeling or thinking about as far as yes, where it goes? I mean, it feels like the whole world is going to stop, but somebody in your seat, that's probably not a good enough answer. There's gotta be some kind of remote plan and other stuff. So, um, can you talk about that for a minute? Yeah, it does feel like the world is going to end. Um, luckily, I don't feel the same way about Yesware as a business. I think that we're pretty well set up for working remotely and having a product that our customers can continue to use during this time. Um, so from a business perspective, I feel very confident that we'll get through it as a company. But of course, you know, my employees are on my mind. We moved to working from home a few days ago. So making sure everybody has what they need from a tech perspective. Um, we have a lot of parents with young kids. That's kind of the big thing that's coming up. I know you and I talked about that even before hopping on today, just the challenges of staying productive when you have a three-year-old running around with no daycare options. Um, that's kind of the biggest um, blocker that I'm seeing um, from our team. You know, it's not tech and, you know, everybody's got Zoom, so we're able to meet regularly. Um, it's not, you know, getting code out the door. They can do that remotely, but it's really like balancing your physical environment when you've got kids running around. So we're trying to be as supportive as we can for them, providing resources and ideas of things they can do to keep their kids busy and obviously being flexible about taking whatever time they need and working more sporadically than a typical nine to five. So um, the parents are really on my mind at the moment. Yeah. Are there any, um, if you were to pull out maybe like one or two actionable things that somebody listening to this in the next few days that has a team facing similar situations, like, is there anything in particular you'd call out? I mean, I think it's important for leadership to go out of their way to be explicit that they are supportive of their teams doing whatever they need to do to obviously take care of their families um, and their own health first and foremost. This is, you know, unprecedented times. Um, so making sure that either your CEO or um, HR or people ops is, is just really being explicit that um, they understand that their their team members need to prioritize other things right now. Um, and approaching it with some humor. I mean, you know, we had some calls the other day where the whole company is logged into Zoom at the same time, which we've never done before. And, you know, people are talking over each other or, you know, somebody screaming in the background or, you know, there's like sirens going on outside. So you just kind of have to take it with a grain of salt and um, get through it together with a little bit of humor, I think. Yeah, I think that's, um, 
my mind immediately wants to go to like contingency plans, but it's, I feel like it's really important to create the space that you're talking about to be like, it's not just work from home. It's going to be way harder and to just like be human about it instead of exactly saying that, Hey, I understand it's going to be hard and not everybody's going to be able to work, but being able to like lead and not do any like check-ins as if people are working regularly or still hope that people are going to hit deadlines. Like everything's yeah. going to slip a bit. So yeah, we have uh, to be flexible right now. I'm with you. Uh, so for the hard transition back to, you know, away from the current state of affairs to try to have a little bit more of a, a positive conversation. Can you tell me about what the director of talent at Yesware does? <laughs> I'll try. Uh, okay. I'm still learning what <laughs> what they do. Yeah. Um, I mean, honestly, it's evolved a lot over the past few years. Um, so I took over the director of talent role about three years ago. And at that time, it was largely recruiting focused. So mostly talent acquisition at that point. Um, we had had somebody in that role prior to myself. Um and they were also largely focused on talent acquisition. Um, we didn't really have a sophisticated HR people operations group outside of that at the time, just because we were you know, a little bit smaller, a little bit earlier stage. We had somebody on the finance side who handled more of like the legal and compliance side of that. So what happened was, you know, the director of talent role wound up just organically taking on more and more outside of talent acquisition. And so even though that was my primary focus stepping into it, you know, you wind up just taking on like employee engagement and employee relations issues. If there's like, you know, support or conflict resolution you need to be involved in, you kind of become the go-to for all of that. Um, office management uh, and operations, things just sort of naturally um, <laughs> continue to fall under your bucket um, as the company grows uh, without a larger people operations team to do that. So as the director of talent, um, you know, my official uh, responsibility continued to be talent acquisition that always came first, but more and more started um, coming my way. And I just loved everything about it. And I as you can probably guess from being a startup person, I enjoyed wearing different hats and, and having sort of a mishmash of responsibilities and juggling a little bit of everything. So I welcomed it. Um, you know, I really enjoyed the recruiting aspect. It was new for me at the time, but um, getting to be involved in those other areas of the company, especially when you've been there kind of from the beginning and are really invested in the people who are there. I really enjoyed taking on those additional responsibilities as well. So at this point now, um, I officially took over the HR benefits administration payroll side of things about a year ago. So that's also now under my belt. So my title director of talent is a little outdated. Uh, I got to talk to somebody about that. But um, it's evolved over time and now it's just a little bit of everything people ops. Yeah, man, that sounds like a lot. It feels in other conversations I've had, it feels like 
it's a bit of like a messier role than VP of finance, right? It's like VP of finance is pretty clear on what the responsibilities are, but it feels like I've, I've heard other people say that I just, it's like an incoming wave of all kinds of things that you say yes to. And then ultimately you try to hire specialists maybe after the fact, like, is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's also because this world of people operations, as you and I are talking about it, is a little bit newer. Um, you know, we used to think about HR as this very like traditional old school human resources where um, it's moved pretty far away from that, at least in the tech industry, um, which I am in. So I think that it's a newer field that um, the people who are drawn to that field naturally like to say yes to things and naturally like to do a little bit of everything and are really people oriented. Um, And so I think the whole field of people operations is evolving um, on sort of a more macro scale than, you know, my experience is kind of one example of that. Um, But it is kind of a messier role, I think, because it's still, it's still new to us and we're still figuring out what it should be and what the different pieces of the puzzle are within it. Got it. Can you tell us how you ended up in people ops? Yeah. Um, so as you mentioned, I, I actually started at Yesware with a very different title, sales operations, um, part of the sales organization. Uh, and that's what I had been doing at my prior company as well, sales ops. Um, and so when I started at Yesware, there was no sales organization. It was pretty early days in that regard. So I actually came on board to help our CEO at the time, who is one of our co-founders, build out <clears throat> the sales team. So everything from hiring people to creating a sales process, getting our Salesforce instance set up, um, working with uh, marketing to talk about leads and who our ideal personas were, um, all of that. Um, and I liked all of it, but I always just really enjoyed the people aspects of that role a little bit more than the sort of technical aspects in Salesforce or um, the sales aspects in terms of like forecasting and setting up pipelines and things like that. Um, So I just knew from an early, an early time that I really enjoyed the hiring and onboarding and working with the reps and working on promotion paths and writing job descriptions and all of that. Um, And I was lucky enough to be able to do all of that because we were small. And so I was doing a little bit of everything in sales operations anyway. Um, And then our director of talent at the time um, at Yesware wound up leaving to um, her next opportunity at a much larger organization looking for something a little bit different. We were still probably maybe under 50 people at that time. Um, And so that opportunity opened up and I just knew immediately that it was the perfect chance for me to reorient my time towards um, the people management, people operations aspects that I liked of sales ops, but to get to do it for the whole company and not just the sales organization. So basically, 
I raised my hand. I reached out to the CEO um, and let him know that I was interested. He was very surprised <laughs> that I was interested um, because we just hadn't really talked about it. Uh, it was just something that I knew in the back of my mind, but I was very focused on what the job at hand was at the time, which was working with the sales team specifically. Um, and he was into it and and I moved into that position. Um, that was maybe 2016. Um, and then like I have already sort of told you the story of how it evolved, it's it's gone from there and expanded. And now I'm running people operations. Was there any like formal training or new things that you had to get under your belt to be able to take on the new role? Formal training. That's funny. Um, <laughs> is there formal training when you're at a startup? <laughs> I wasn't sure if you had to like go back to school or get like yeah. an HR certification or. I wish, I wish I'd love to, uh, I'd love to do some more formal stuff, but, um, I was lucky in that the woman who was in the role prior to me taking it on, I had a few weeks of overlap with her before she left. So, you know, we sat down in a room and she kind of just downloaded her brain and did a bunch of whiteboarding for me and explained how she does, um, you know, recruiting screens and how she advances them in the system. I had never done that stuff before from more of like a formal talent acquisition perspective. And so she kind of taught me talent acquisition. So I was very lucky to have that time with her. Um, that was probably the most formal training at that point. And then I just learned on the job. I just started making calls and talking to candidates and um, building my own process. Um, luckily, it came pretty naturally. So um, I was able to just jump right in. The other formal training that I did do was when I agreed to take over the HR admin side of things, which was about a year ago when I took over benefits and payroll. Um, I did do an HR boot camp actually <laughs> for two days, um, which doesn't sound like a lot of time, but we packed it in and talked about everything from, you know, paid leave policies and um, a lot of stuff that I had never been taught before from a compliance perspective that is a really crucial part to more of that traditional HR side of the job. So I was, um, I was grateful for that training as well. Are there any other like um, communities or like mentors that you've leaned on for support as you take on more and more of these people things? Yeah, definitely. There's actually a really tight knit community in Boston for people ops people. Um, we have a ton of Slack channels. Um, that's probably the best um, place to go for advice and um, and guidance and sharing ideas with other people ops people. So there's a there's maybe four or five channels that I'm in. It's mostly the same people. We probably don't really need five different channels. We're all, it's the same group and we're talking about the same things across different groups, but it's a great place to, um, you know, ask each other questions if someone's run into this kind of thing before, or does anyone have a recommendation on a new performance management system or a new ATS or, um, you know, how would you handle this? So it's, it's a great, community. Um, and 
I enjoy talking to people and then getting to finally meet them in person at things like career fairs, um, where, you know, we've been talking over Slack for months, uh, but you don't actually know the person. So it's a great group. Yeah, I think I feel like I just took a note to explore some of that, like for myself, like the that immediate access to people that maybe at a different point, like on their journey or in their career, like somebody that is maybe three years behind you, like having you in that Slack channel is unbelievably helpful. And then maybe somebody that is, has been doing it for 15 years, um, you know, being a little bit further down the path must be really helpful for you too. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Um, let's talk a little bit about talent acquisition. So the way that my brain thinks about it, that I think makes sense is sort of like the funnel you have, it's really a sales process or similar to a sales process to get somebody to get a candidate in the door. Um, so could we start at the top, like maybe recruiting and then hiring, interviewing, onboarding? Like, can you take us through that funnel if, if that's a decent framework for you? Yeah, absolutely. I think Yesware is kind of a unique example because we do most of our talent acquisition through inbound candidates that come to us and, and apply either on our website or through, um, you know, our Glassdoor jobs pages or LinkedIn. Um, a lot of traditional talent acquisition orgs do a lot of sourcing um, and outbound prospecting for candidates, mostly on LinkedIn. So Yesware is pretty different in that we really don't do any of that. Um and it's because we've been lucky enough to be able to fill the funnel with inbound candidates. Um, and that's, you know, that's been years in the making of um, building a positive reputation and brand in the Boston area. So we feel very lucky to be able to re- rely on that inbound flow. Um, and so what that means is I can kind of post a position blast some social media about it to get the word out and then just wait for applications to come in and we get some really great candidates. Um, And I'll see them in the ATS. We use a system called Google Hire right now, which unfortunately is um, being sunsetted uh, in the next couple of months. So I'm pretty bummed about that. That's a big topic of conversation in our people app Slack channels uh, for everyone looking for a new tool. Um. And I'll usually from there work with the hiring managers to screen resumes um, based on, you know, what we're looking for for the role. I'll reach out to them for an initial conversation. Um, So it's probably like, you know, about a half hour call just to get to know them a little bit, tell them a little bit more about the role and the team and the company um, and kind of gauge a mutual fit. So that's kind of how it gets started. But and my biggest point there is that, you know, they're applying to us. So that's a totally different top of the funnel than it is if I have to convince someone to talk to me or start from ground zero if they don't know anything about Yesware. These people already know about us. So I'm in a very kind of head start position at that point. Is that, was that intentional? Like if you were talking to somebody getting started that, I mean, to me, it makes really good sense. It also sounds like, and you had said it, it takes a long time to build up the appropriate reputation where people are raising their hand saying, 
I want to go work there. Like, how could somebody, if they were going to start today and in three years have a similar setup, what types of activities should they be doing to create that? Yeah, that's a really good, hard question. I don't know that um, it's fully in your control as talent acquisition. I mean, basically, the reason that we're in the position now is because we've built a great company. Particularly, we've built a great culture. Um, So that's really where it starts, I think, is focusing on the culture that you're building with your existing team. Um, and then going out and talking about it, obviously people need to know about that great culture if they want to, if, you know, if they're going to figure out that they want to apply and and be part of it. Um, but you can kind of do it just by focusing on the culture and then by supporting your, what I'll call Yesware alum, like people who have worked at Yesware and have moved on, making sure that those relationships continue to be positive as well so that the reputation you know, never dies when somebody walks out the door. Um, they can be your best evangelists. We try to make sure that people's last day is as positive as their first day. Um, and so they kind of carry on um, that legacy once they leave. And over a couple of years, you know, people are coming and going from startups. And if you can maintain that positive existing culture and the positive reputation from your alumni, um, the word will get out for sure. Just to circle back a little bit, like I want to go, I want to spend a chunk of time on culture and values. Um, but I don't want to skip over some of like the nuts and bolts of interviewing. So I guess I'd love to, I think I know what you're going to say about how you got good at it, but how does somebody get good at interviewing and and if you have any tips or strategies that you think would be helpful? Um, Well, you're probably right. I would have said I got good at it by doing it (laughs) a lot, (laughs) Um, such as the case for most things. Um, I think that I got good at it by focusing on helping the candidate be as comfortable as possible as the first and foremost framework that I want to set up. Um, The more comfortable that other person is, the more honest they'll be able to be, the more open they'll be able to be. I mean, you genuinely do want to get to know each other and I like in a real way. And I don't mean it to sound like weird (laughs) or like unprofessional, but you're trying to figure out a mutual fit. And so I have found that the more I can make it feel like a conversation between two people who are friends, um, the more I'll genuinely get to know the person and the more they'll genuinely be able to determine that mutual fit on their end as well. So obviously you're talking about relevant things to the job, um, but you don't need to make it feel like a grill session or, you know, an old school interview where I'm just like listing off questions and not responding to what they're saying. You want it to be a dialogue. You want it to be comfortable. um, And that's what I've found has been the most effective way to have these kinds of screening conversations. Is there any particular question or questions that you use 
to get somebody to maybe take a breath and like let their shoulders drop a little bit when you get in the room with somebody or on the phone? Yeah, I think it's different for every conversation. There are so many different kinds of personalities out there that I talk to. You know, we're interviewing for software engineers. We're interviewing for salespeople. (laughs) Those are very two different uh, types of people. So I try to take a cue from them about how comfortable are they, how much do they like to talk? How much do they know about Yesware? So it's really different for every single conversation. Um, But I try to really take that cue from them. Um, So there's probably not one question. I think more so they feed off of my energy to take that breath um, and relax a little bit. So, um, you know, I try to match their energy level or speed or smiliness or talkativeness. Um, and then that'll just sort of become cyclical within the conversation. So it's not so much one question to get them there. It's more so me gauging where they're at from the get go and then kind of like matching them to level, level the energy a little bit. I love that you said that, like, instead of like, you know, you got to have this scorecard and you got to do all this. It's just like making somebody comfortable, I think is, I'm just really glad you said that. It's refreshing. Um, Yeah. I mean, on the other hand, right. You can only do that if you have a very clear understanding of what the job requirements are and kind of the qualifications because it is an interview. Um, Sure. So you know, I can do that because I'm able to get out the information I need to go back to the hiring manager and make a recommendation about a move forward or not. Um, so I'm not trying to like make light of, uh, you know, the fact that you're, you're trying to hire for a position and you've got criteria and qualifications that you need to match. Um, so the better that you can understand the roles you're hiring for and what the hiring manager is looking for, the more freedom that you'll have in the physical conversation itself to be able to create this comfortable, open um, environment with the candidate. Um, What type of like prep can you do for each person? Or do you do this kind of like general prep for the position? Let me just not make any assumptions. What kind of prep do you do for somebody before you get in the room? I will definitely read through their application. So we usually ask for cover letters. Um, We don't make it required, partly because we want to see if somebody goes out of their way to send one. Mm -hmm. Um, So I do spend a lot of time reading through their cover letter because that is their opportunity to differentiate themselves and really speak to why they're interested in Yesware. Um, you know, a resume is going to look the same if they're applying to Yesware versus another company, but a cover letter is an opportunity for them to actually, you know, tell their story. Um, and so it's pretty clear whether they have customized that or not. Um, so that's probably the most telling piece for me. Um, 
there's really no excuse not to customize a cover letter if you're truly interested. And, and you know, if you're just shopping around, that's fine. Um, and so I can kind of tell how interested and how prepared somebody is um, based on that data point, partly. Um, I do also looked at look at LinkedIn profiles. I think that that's really helpful because that is how the candidate is representing themselves um, globally. You know, in their application, they may be um, tweaking things on their resume, like title to match, um, you know, the job that they're applying for. They may tweak their objective statement in the resume to, um, again, be relevant for what they're applying for for Yesware. But on on LinkedIn, you have something that everybody can see. And so I like to see how they're representing themselves globally and if it lines up with how they represented themselves and in their application. Um, so yeah, that's, that's probably it as far as prep. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot that you also don't want to do to sort of pre-bias yourself. Like I try not to stalk people on social media. Um, although it's totally possible you can Google somebody's name and find a lot of information, but, uh, generally speaking, you know, that's not a great idea just in terms of bias and sort of preempting, um, the image before you actually talk to somebody. Got it. Um, what is, so like the full hiring process at Yesware, is it other than the inbound piece, which is definitely different, is the rest of the process somewhat standard where it's phone screen, in person? Um, is there anything else in that process that is unique? Sure. I think probably pretty standard. Um, one piece that we've been doing with our software engineering interviews is actually asking them to prepare a presentation for the on-site round. Um, it's a little bit more common for different roles, maybe like a product manager role um, or you know a sales role. A lot of companies ask you to prep a pitch um, or a deck, but it's not as common to do a presentation of that kind for engineering. And we've had a lot of success with it because of the way that we set it up. Um, we ask the candidates to pick their own topic, um, something that, you know, obviously represents their their skills and expertise in some area of software engineering. Um, but we really give them a lot of freedom to pick that topic. And the reason for that is that the rest of the on-site interview, we're really driving the topics that we're asking them about or that we're whiteboarding with them. Um we want them to have some stake in the game as well and get to bring something to us that they're excited to talk about. And so they feel, you know, a sense of ownership and they're actually able to have a little bit more control over that session. Um, given that they chose the topic, obviously they're picking something that they're, you know, confident about and can talk about at length and is probably a project that they did that they had a lot of fun with. Um, and so that's been really, really helpful um, for us both to see, um, you know, maybe something that wouldn't have otherwise come up in in the rest of the sessions and also to get them a little bit more involved in sort of the ownership of the day. Since, again, it's a two way street. So we want we want the whole process to be a back and forth. We don't want them to feel like they're just responding to us. It should be the other way around as well. Got it. Just to make a bit of a transition to like 
after you hire people and they are on the team to circle back to what I mentioned about hitting some culture and some values. And I'd love to just leave that open-ended so you can take that where you'd like to start. Sure. About how we... Just culture, like what you think about yeah. culture, maybe what, um, how to be intentional about having the culture match what you want it to match, maybe something like that. Yeah. You know, it's funny because I think I take it for granted a little bit because we do such a good job of it. Um, so kind of taking a step back and, and asking myself, well, why are we doing such a good job? Or like, what is it about um, the way that we do it that is working? Um, so, I, I mean, I think that it all starts with the people that you have there in the first place. Um, you can't build the culture you want if you have people who aren't going to uphold it. Um, you know, we have a no jerk policy um, that a lot of companies try to do as well, but don't always don't always stick to that. Um, and so that makes it really hard, even if you have things like written values, even if you know you've got it on the walls, even if you talk about it at the all hands, if you have people who are not living out those values, um, then it's not going to work. So I think that's really where it starts. And um, we've been really lucky to have great people who do represent our values. Um, and we've been very intentional about explaining to people that, you know, if you don't, then you're probably not a good fit for Yesware. Um, you know, that's that's a hard line that we've taken. Luckily, we haven't had to make many decisions based on that not working out. Um, but people get it. Um, so again, it really starts with the people. Once you have new hires, I mean, if you've got the right people, then you kind of, you know, release them into the wild and the people take it over from there. So, you know, our teams make sure that if it's somebody's first week, they're going out to lunch, um, they're getting to know people, um, for many of our teams, we match new hires with a peer mentor who's kind of their go-to for the first couple weeks or, or a few months of their employment, just so that they have, you know, a go-to person who's not their manager, who's not the VP of the department, who's not HR, that they can ask, you know, silly questions to, or um, maybe feel a little bit more comfortable um, during their first few weeks as they're getting to know everything. So I think that that, that's a big piece of it as well. Um, and we work with those peer mentors to make sure that, um, you know, we're working with them. If they're spending a lot of time with this new hire, maybe they're not getting assigned as many new projects at that time. Um, and so that signals to them that this is a real priority. You know, new hires are a genuine priority. There's a business case for it. You know, it's not just like, an added side project to think about on the side. It's, it's, um, it's something that is an all hands on deck kind of business activity. What I hear is that like the values piece and getting the values on paper or codified is really foundational. So when do people take the time to make sure that the values are something that 
are, you know, written in stone? Like, what does that exercise look like and when should it be done? Yeah, yeah, that's that's a great topic. Um, we've got kind of a cool story around that. Um, so Yesware has always had core values as far back as I can remember. Um, but things change so much over time and not in a bad way, of course, you know, you evolve as a company. Um, and so the things that are important to you evolve. So one thing that we did pretty recently, about a year ago, um, we decided that it was time to update our core values. Um, you know, we'd had a set of of five things that um, we talked a lot about and we, you know, held ourselves to when it came to things like performance and you know how you're showing up at work. We all knew what these five values were. They were relevant, um, but they could be they could be better for who Yesware is now versus you know who Yesware was six years ago. That's a long time. Um, things change. So one thing that we did actually was create a Slack-based system to tag peer recognition. So things that, you know, I'm saying, thanks so much, Tom, for helping me out with XYZ yesterday. I would tag it in Slack. And um, then what I did as people ops was over a few weeks, capture all of those tags and do a little bit of data analysis on things like what were the most common words that came up um, in all of those peer recognition tags? What were the most common themes that came up? Um, And is there something there from a core values perspective? And so we did this whole exercise where we did that for a few weeks. And then I would go back to the team and say, hey, here are the top 10 things that came up in your peer recognitions. Like, do we think our new values are in there somewhere? Um, And then from there, you know, distill it down even further using that list um, and then actually tagging those words next time in your peer recognition. So instead of just saying, hey, Tom, thanks for helping me out with that thing yesterday, you say, hey, Tom, thanks for helping me out with that thing yesterday. That really exemplified working together and how important that is to us. And so then working together became the thing that you tag and you see where it goes. This was all grassroots. Um, You know, we took thousands and thousands of lines of data um, from people's, you know, organic Slack messages. Everybody across the company participated. um, And I was able to distill our new values from that process. Um, And so that's where our new values came from was just from what people were naturally, you know, thanking each other for or giving each other a shout out for or mentioning um, in Slack. I love that. That feels like really based in reality, like what is actually happening. That's so cool. I I haven't heard of it done that way, but um, I love that. Can I, uh, can I ask you about uh, a post from LinkedIn in honor of your seven year anniversary (laughs) at Yesware? Just I to give you a come back to bite me in some (laughs) way. (laughs) I'm not, I'm not trying to, uh, to trap you at all, but the first thing is, don't join a startup if you're not comfortable with rapid, constant changes. What do you mean by that? And like, what does that look like inside of a startup? What does it feel like to be in an organization like that? 
Yeah. Um, you know, I think it both has to do with being at a startup and has to do with, you know, the industry that Yesware is in. Um, you know, we're a technology, we're also in a very competitive market. Um, so for us, <clears throat> you know, our landscape is changing all the time in that maybe there's a new competitor out there who's taking a piece of what we're also trying to do. And now we need to figure out how to differentiate from them. Um, maybe, you know, one of our competitors actually just got acquired by another company and now that looks totally different and maybe we can go after their users um, and that presents a new opportunity for us. So the landscape and the market for us specifically is always changing because it is such a crowded space. Um, but more generally speaking at startups, you know, you're a startup because you're, you're new. Um, and so things just change about maybe it's your financial situation or maybe uh, somebody on your team leaves um, and every every change that maybe wouldn't have as much of an impact at a larger, more established organization just has a bigger ripple effect at a smaller, newer company. And so you have to adapt to those things. You have to adapt to a change in budget, a change in funding, a change in team membership, a change in the competitive landscape. Just everything is bigger uh, for you. Um, and so I think it's it's hard to to really understand that until you're in it. Um, and so my point there was that like, that has been the most consistent thing is change. I know that's corny, but um, it's not for everybody. So if it bothers you to change the plan every couple of weeks, a startup is not a good place for you. And that's not a bad thing. I personally don't mind pivoting and being flexible and being agile. And there's obviously a lot of people who don't mind either because the startup community is, is obviously thriving. Um, but no matter what landscape you're in, um, no matter what your team looks like, startups just inherently have to be flexible and, and stay on their toes. Is there anything you can do during the hiring process to sort for that? Like the thing that is is really interesting to me and also really hard. I've done some interviewing, but not a lot. But if you have, especially now, like you're in this place, at least from the website's perspective, like you have these values that are really well-defined. My thinking would be you would kind of like, I know that the recruiting is inbound, but you have those as somewhat of a scorecard to measure people against. How can you do like, just taking that first thing, the the constant change topic. How can you interview against that or like try to sort when you're in the room with somebody like, okay, this person is or is not going to be okay with that? Yeah. I mean, I think you can ask questions like, tell me about a time that things didn't go according to plan and leave it that open-ended to let the candidate um, signal to you whether they had a positive or a negative reaction to whatever that thing was that didn't go according to plan. So I think leaving it really open-ended and sort of letting them show you whether 
um, the way they're telling the story, you know, is that it was a bad thing that it didn't go according to plan or whether, you know, they tell you a story about how they got creative and got scrappy and figured it out. Um, it's pretty it's pretty clear if, if you leave it open-ended, sort of just letting somebody um, be open about, about how they approach that situation. We also do try to scare people a little bit in interviews um, on this topic. And I don't mean that in like a weird way, but we really do press on this um, about coming to a startup and what it's like being in a startup and being comfortable with rapid change and being flexible. Um, we push on it um, because the worst thing that we could do is not be realistic with people about what it's like and maybe oversell something. You never want to oversell it um, because they're going to come and, and their expectations are not going to meet reality and they're not going to be happy. And then you're back to square one. Um, so we try to, we try to really push this issue and people appreciate that. I think because, you know, at any point they can say, okay, you're right. Like, maybe this isn't for me, or they can sit there and then sell it back to you and say, no, that's exactly what I'm looking for. I'm interested in a rapid dynamic environment. You know, I've been working at an older, more established company for 10 years, and I'm bored out of my mind. So that's exactly what I'm looking for. Um, so they're pretty, they're, they're interesting conversations. But, um, you know, the more sort of upfront you can be about it, the better. Got it. Let try one more here that might get me in trouble. But number five is MBAs are overrated. <laughs> and when I mentioned formal training earlier in our <laughs> conversation, you laughed at me too. So you want to say a little bit more about that? Yeah, you know, there's no offense here to to all of uh, my friends with with MBAs. We have obviously a lot of team members who I think you're a Babson guy, right? Is that Undergrad, yeah, I don't have okay. an MBA. Oh, there you go. And so you're not going to okay for you. <laughs> <laughs> You're a great example. Yeah, I think, I mean, Boston is so higher education focused. We're pretty snobby about, you know, where people go to school. Yeah. I just think it's, it's, I think, you know, where you went to school in general um, does not make a difference. Um, and Boston just, you know, given the institutions that are here, we're kind of working, um, working against that a little bit already, just given our, our historical snobbiness. Um, but, you know, at startups, um, you definitely do put into place a lot of the things that you would learn at a business school. But again, I've said probably like 10 times in this conversation, I learned it by doing it. Um, and every startup is going to be different. You can't necessarily rely on a textbook or a playbook or, you know, the theory that you learn in a classroom. You have to learn by doing it um, based on your, you know, your real business situation and all of the nuances that come with your, your business on a day-to-day -day basis, not like, the theory of business or, you know, the case study that you studied, um, 
it's just going to be different in reality. And so I think, I think also my point in saying that was from a talent acquisition perspective that um, educational background doesn't matter as much as a lot of hiring managers think it does. And so as part of the recruiting community, you know, we can continue to raise up people who maybe haven't had the privilege of, you know, going to business school um, or maybe doing some kind of career switch and don't have a formal background. Like it just doesn't matter. (laughs) And so I'm also trying to sort of preach that from the rooftops for all the recruiters out there to continue to look for maybe more non-traditional candidates or candidates with different educational backgrounds. Um, so that was, that was also my point there as well. I love that. I think it's a great message. I've got two more questions. Um, what do you think is going to happen to hiring in general the next few weeks or longer here? I think it's going to slow, um, if not stop altogether. I think that companies are really anxious right now about the future. Um, I think investors are nervous too. Um, Again, I think, you know, for Yesware, we're in a good position just based on what our business and what our product is. And so um, I feel optimistic for our own situation. But in terms of hiring in general, you know, there's the added challenge of everybody being remote. So, you know, now people can't meet in person, which is a huge element of interviewing. Um, Not everybody has Zoom. So now there's like technical um, limitations of just having conversations with each other. So I think it's going to drastically slow down. Um, But there are a lot of companies who are very used to remote work. There are some companies even in Boston that are fully remote, um, you know, outside of this particular situation. And so they're business as usual. And so there are definitely opportunities out there. You know, if you're looking for a job, don't stop looking for a job, um, but just know that it might take a little bit longer and you might need to do a little bit more research on the companies that can support that process remotely. Um, But it's definitely... It's definitely weird. Yeah, I'm with you. Last question. And this is from your about page. And just another question I like to ask, but your about on LinkedIn says, my mission is to help make Yesware the best place we've ever worked. So for people that do or have worked at Yesware, what do you hope that they say about the experience? Yeah, I mean, I hope that they can look back and um, really genuinely feel that it was the best group of people that they've ever worked with. Um, people do say that to us all the time, not just to, you know, blow smoke up our ass. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, I talked about um, that alumni cohort, right, and making sure that folks on their way out feel just as positively as they did on their way in. And um, I do see that um, from folks who have left Yesware. People um, tend to stay in touch. They tend to go on and work together again, which is a great sign. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's really what I'm looking to build is a place where people can meet other great people who they want to continue 
knowing or working with um, or, you know, starting their own company together someday. So, um, you know, Matthew Bellows, who is is our one of our co-founders and, and our first CEO, that's that's who said that quote about, you know, wanting to make this the best place people have ever worked. And, you know, in 40 years when, you know, they're retired and they're sitting on their front porch and thinking back uh, to their career that, you know, yes, where really stands out in their minds is somewhere that they could do great work and do it with great people. Um, so that's kind of, that's kind of what I'm, I'm going for. Yeah. That's a really great thing to aspire to. Um, anything else you want to say before we say goodbye? Just, uh, you know, stay calm, wash your hands, <laughs> don't touch your face. <laughs> uh, you know, I think, um, I think there's a lot that my field of, of people operations can do to support people right now. And so it's kind of funny because I think this is like an opportunity for people ops and HR and talent and, and those guys to really step up and um, help lead their companies through this tough time. They don't always get to be sort of front of mind for their organizations. Um, you know, usually you know, it's, it's all about product or it's all about sales. Um, but right now it's about supporting your teams. Um, and so this is a really interesting opportunity for people ops to come together and, and help their groups through this. What a strong finish. I love that. <laughs> Thanks for doing this. That was um, really fun. And I have tons of notes and I'm excited to go back and listen to uh, to see what else I can pull out of here. So thank you. Thank you. Really had a great time. Appreciate it. Stay safe. I'll talk to you soon. All right. Talk to you thank soon. Thank you. Thanks.